For those of you who have got to know me a little bit, it will come as no surprise to know that I love my food. And I like a good feast. You can offer me seconds that fourths might be pushing it, but I will, I will not say no. And gathering in large crowds for a feast is even better because often there's more food, <laughs> but it's a chance to be with lots of different people. And you're usually in that setting because you're celebrating something. So take a wedding reception as an example. I'm sure most of us have been to a wedding and a wedding reception at some point. It's a large gathering of people coming to celebrate something together. But it's a large group of people of all sorts of different types of people from different places. And often when you go to a wedding reception, sometimes you don't often know many other people. Think about a wedding reception that you have been to recently. You arrive at the wedding reception and you find your name on the table plan. You go and you sit down in your place and you're sat next to Joe Bloggs. You don't know him, you've never met him before, but you start chatting. You get to know one another a little bit. And of course you find out how do you know the happy couple. A time of feasting, a time of celebrating something that you have in common. And in, in one sense, David sets a similar scene for us in Psalm 22 like this. And although it might not be clear and obvious to you right now, hopefully as we go through this last part of the psalm, it will. So keep that image in your mind, the image of a, of a great feast, of a number of large number of people gathered together from different backgrounds, but together celebrating something, a great event in history. Throughout Psalm 22, we have seen the anguish and the suffering that David has been expressing of his own experience, his cry for mercy, for God's help. And we've seen that although David is sharing something of his own experience, he's looking far beyond himself. He's looking to Jesus. He's looking to that crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. The words of Jesus himself, as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he suffers and dies, as his hands are nailed to the cross. We see the death Jesus died for us, but we also see the great victory that he's won for us. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's not dead now, he's alive. And we can rejoice and we can celebrate. And we began to think about that last week, declaring God's name in the sanctuary in the assembly, the people gather together to declare his name. And so this morning, we're going to continue to think about that, to think about praise as our right response to God, to what he has done for us in Christ. As we see the psalmist's response to the Lord, we see that it goes beyond himself, even in these last verses. He has the gathered people in the assembly with him, and they're giving thanks and praise for God's deliverance there and then. But yet as we read on, we see David is looking far beyond himself again to a greater deliverance of all people throughout all times, all people who are welcome and called to gather around to enjoy this feast. So what do we see David tell us about this universal scope to the response? Firstly, we see the praise of God's people, verses 25 and 26, the praise of God's people. David is seeing the Lord's deliverance, and he continues to praise and give thanks to the Lord. He's in the great assembly with all the Israelites, so you can imagine 
They're at the tabernacle, a time of worship and fellowship together. They're all gathered around. He's gathered those who fear the Lord. So those who are wanting to come and praise God. Perhaps those who have been a part of this great deliverance, whatever it was. They've cried out to God for help. They've seen his deliverance. And so they come to their God, the one who's rescued them. They come for this very purpose, to praise. And David says that he comes to fulfill his vow. We heard a bit about that last week. A vow. What is that all about? Well, the Israelites made vows for a number of different reasons. Sometimes they would make a vow because they want to seek favor from God. So they'd offer sacrifices. They would show their commitment. They want to prove them their devotion to the Lord. They'd vow to give of themselves. They'd vow to give their time, their money, their lives even in service of their God. That's one type of vow that people may have given. Another vow was just simply a vow of praise and thanksgiving for what God has done. So somebody would, would be in a difficult, tough situation. They'd be crying out, seeking God's rescue. They'd make a vow, Lord, if you save me from this, I will praise you. And so that's what's happening here with David. We've seen him at the beginning. He's suffering. He's in pain. He needs deliverance. He's vowed to the Lord that he will declare his name if he rescues him. David has seen that deliverance. And so he's gathered the people together to be a part of that thanksgiving of praise and vow. If you want to know more about vows, read Leviticus, and you can find the details there. The theme of the event. So David says, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. And the theme for us this morning has been what we've looked at the last four weeks. The theme of the gospel, of the cross, of the great redemption, the Christ has won for us. It's not just about David and his deliverance, but it's about that greater deliverance, the deliverance from sin. And many are invited. David sees the poor, the needy, the afflicted. They're invited to come. Those who've experienced the trial themselves, who've been through the hardship and have come through the other side as God has delivered them. They've seen God answer prayer. So their response is praise and is worship. And so they come and they eat. The poor will eat and they're satisfied. Those who seek the Lord praise him and their hearts will live forever. David calls out, may your hearts live forever. An exclamation that God would bless them and sustain them and keep them. When we see God and all that he's done, we remember who he is, that he is the great deliverer. And we give him praise and we give him thanks. And we remember that he alone is the only one that satisfies. The poor will eat and be satisfied. If you're a Christian this morning, I hope the one reason you're here today is because you found that satisfaction in God. You found that hope, that meaning, that purpose in your life. You've discovered who he is and who you are in relationship to him, that you are in his creation, that you're a child that you're loved by him, that you're someone who's been rescued from death, from hell, by the Lord Jesus. And in him and him alone do we find our freedom. And although each of us, as we've seen so far in the psalm, each of us have gone through tough times, are going through trials and difficulties in our lives, that doesn't keep us from the gathered assembly. 
Why? Because where else do we go? Where else would we find satisfaction and help and answer in our time of trouble and our need? So as we gather and as we struggle, as we continue to cry out to God for the difficulties that we experience, we know that this is the best place. In the gathered assembly with his people, hearing his word, hearing how, praying together, asking God to help and deliver, and praising him and giving thanks and sharing with one another the great deliverances that God has made. As you read through the Psalms, you see David, he does this a number of times. You see him making a vow to the Lord. He's been delivered of something and he makes a vow, he gathers people, he sacrifices an animal, people come and they eat. Those who fear the Lord come and worship him. And so what is, what is your attitude when you come in the gathered assembly? Or any kind of gathered assembly with Christians in your home group, or just one or two of you together? What's your attitude towards these times? Now, I don't mean that we should come and bring a bull and sacrifice it in the front of the church. Those days are past. But as we come to sing, to praise God at the beginning of the service, what attitude do you take to that, towards that praise? Are we here ready to sing, to praise and glorify God? Is it just something we do, a duty that we go through to get to the sermon? Well, no, because it is just as much as part of our worship as anything else. And so what time do we arrive to church on a Sunday morning? Does that reflect the kind of attitude that we have towards the gathered assembly, towards the praise and thanks to God? One of the encouraging things in evangelism is the opportunity to hear stories and to hear testimonies of what God has been doing. And we do that here, and that's great to, to see what God is doing in people's lives. And we can rejoice with those who, who find success in people responding to the gospel. But we can also mourn, and we can encourage those who find it hard and find it difficult. It encourages us in our own mission, our own evangelism, our own um, service of God day by day as we hear one another's testimonies and, and share together the things that God is doing in our lives. And I know that many of you in your home groups, you do that week by week. It's great to hear stories of, of those sharing, well, this is my situation. These are my work colleagues, my friends, my family who, who don't know Christ. Please join with me in praying for them. But let's not just pray for them, but let's also share the encouragements that we can give thanks, that we can give praise. So let it be our vow as Christians, as the church, our vow to give thanks and to give praise in response to what God has done. That it wouldn't just be something we do to pass the time. As Ian encouraged us at the beginning of the service, that we sang the same song twice. Oh, really? What what powerful words of who God is, and we behold our God. And when we meet our God in such a circumstance, I hope that you do experience him that reminds you of who he is. And an expression of praise comes out of your lips. So the praise of God's people. And David moves on and he looks to the promise for all people, the promise for all people. As David reflects on the, the response of God's people from that, that deliverance, that of trouble and death, he's looking beyond himself. 
he sees a greater gathered assembly of all those people who have been changed and affected by Christ. The gospel goes beyond more than just that gathered people of Israel. Read with me from verse 27. And all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Families and nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Again, in the Psalms, a number of occasions you get this view that David understands that, that there's something bigger going on in the world. It's not just about Israel, but that God's salvation goes beyond. It goes to the nations, to the Gentiles, to you and I. He knows that it's the job of Israel to be a light to the nations. By the way they live, by the way they worship, by the way that they see God's blessing in their lives, they will be a light and a witness to those around them. Take my favorite psalm, Psalm 96, as an example. The psalm of global declaration that the Lord reigns. David tells them to proclaim to the families of nations, to declare to all the earth the marvelous things that God has done. It's the very fact that the Lord reigns over all the earth. There's the reason that all the earth needs to hear of this great news. He says in verse 28 of our psalm today, For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules the nations. So the Lord, our God, he is God of all people. He's the creator of the universe, and he has dominion and power over all nations. So who are these people that David talks about? Well, the ends of the earth, he says first. The ends of the earth. That means that there's nowhere, no one, who is out of God's reach. No one who is out of the need of the gospel. Even the far ends of the earth, the remote, distant, small, difficult places to get to, they are within God's rule, and they are within the need. The families of nations. David is king of Israel, but he's, he's surrounded by the nations. And the nations go out and go out around the whole world. People groups and tribes and languages all over the world. People who need to hear of God's deliverance. Jesus died on the cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Far, far away from us. A long, long time ago from us. But yet these things are relevant and they make a difference. The rich of the earth, the wealthy, those that think we don't need to feast, we don't need God. We are happy, we are satisfied, we are strong and powerful and successful and wealthy. Why do we need such a God? Even they are under God's rule and even they need God. Why? Because like all of us, eventually we will go down to the dust. Life does not go on forever here on this earth. None of us can keep ourselves alive. From dust we came, and to dust we shall return. And nothing that we have in our lives can we can take with us. And so all of us are in need. No matter how successful and powerful and wealthy, none of us can escape the inevitability of death. 
And so it's not just the fact that everybody is welcome, but we begin to see that that everybody, that all nations will be represented on that day. And what will they do? Well, they'll remember. They'll acknowledge. They'll recognize who God is. They'll turn to their God. They'll bow their knee, as David says in verse 27. Rejecting their, their own rule, rejecting following foreign allegiances and foreign gods. And they'll come and they'll give their lives to God. They'll humble themselves. They'll repent and turn to God. The rich will join in the feast that those who know God are having. They'll come and join in. They'll worship in the gathered assembly. And so as we meet this morning as God's people here, as God's people meet in different church buildings around the city, around the world, we are surrounded by those who don't know God. The rich, the wealthy, the poor, the needy, the black, the white, the young, the old, all sorts of different types of people. And yet the gospel message is not just for for us, it's not just for a select type of person, but it's for all of these people. It's for the ends of the earth, because the ends of the earth will come and worship the Lord. And we here today, 21st century, we are evidence that this promise has begun to be fulfilled. That great deliverance won for us by Jesus Christ on the cross was proclaimed by the disciples. They went out to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, and on and on and on, throughout Europe and beyond. As the centuries have gone on, people have heard and responded to the gospel. From the Middle East to Europe, to Africa, west to Americas, east to Asia, south to Australasia. The gospel has gone out to so many different nations and countries. But but there is still work to be done. There are still people groups and tribes and languages within these countries that have not heard of Jesus. The Joshua Project is an organization that seeks to highlight the ethnic people groups in the world that have a very small number of Christians they say that there are about 7,000 different people groups in the world that lack enough resources and followers of Christ to evangelize their own people. Most of those countries are within what people call the 1040 window. 10 degrees, 4 degrees latitude window. North Africa, Middle East, India. The places where the gospel first started in the Middle East, are now, 2,000 years later, in desperate need for the same message. But remember this, Jesus, to his disciples, he said, this gospel that I'm calling you to preach, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Can you imagine the disciples as they hear Jesus saying this and they think, So this is not just for us, for Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. The world must have been so huge to those 12 men on that day. Can you imagine how they would have felt if they had our global geographical knowledge that we have today? But the good news is that this good news has gone out to all of these nations. Throughout the centuries, as life has gone on, God has sent people 
and people have responded to the gospel and, and people have come to Christ all over the world from all sorts of different nations and peoples and tribes and languages. Alison and I know a family who left Britain to go on mission. The wife is British, but her husband is Peruvian. And they felt God calling them to go to Peru with the gospel. With their two young children, they headed off a couple of years ago. And they haven't gone to Lima, the capital city, where many, many people are. They've gone to a small little village high up in the Andes Mountains, far, far away from any city, hours away from a supermarket and the internet. Why? Because those people are just as significant as anyone else. They are just as in need of the gospel as anyone else. A small community who speak their own language, their own tribe, and yet does not the Bible promise us that people from all nations and all peoples and all tribes and languages will be represented, represented in heaven. People from MRC have gone out to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel. Is God calling you? Do you have a heart and a burden and a passion to go beyond our shores to the far ends of the earth? to proclaim the gospel. Maybe some here have that calling. If you do, act upon it, respond to it. Seek to fulfill that calling. Most of us won't be called to go to the end of the earth. And that is fine. And that is great. Why? Because we are surrounded by the nations here. We're surrounded by people who don't know Christ on our doorsteps. And so in one sense, we are all called to go to bear witness to Christ and the difference that he has made in our lives. And so as the good news has been passed down to us from generation to generation, so it will continue from generation to generation to come. And so therefore we must pass on that good news. And so finally, David moves on to the proclamation of future, two future people, Verse 30, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. The Lord Jesus promised that one day he will return and he will come back. And he will gather all of those who have loved and trusted in the Lord Jesus will gather them together to be with him forever. That day could be soon. It could be beyond our lifetime. And so as Dan warned us before Christmas in 2 Timothy, that the church is only ever one generation away from extinction. We as today's generation have a responsibility to pass it on to the next generation. As David proclaims and declares God's name in the assembly, it has gone on. And future generations have served and worshipped the Lord. People have humbled and bowed the knee to him and passed it on to their generation. The Israelites and David saw the Lord rescue them through such hard times from some hard enemies. But a greater deliverance has happened in our world. 
a greater act of mercy. The defeat of a greater enemy of sin and Satan and death has been defeated once and for all. At the cross, a sacrifice was made. A death was taken in our place. Jesus suffered as he took upon the sin of the world to redeem us. And when he was all done and he was hanging upon that cross, what did he cry out? It is finished. It is done. That great work of redemption for all people is done. The way open to God is made free and available for those who trust in him. There will be a day where no more death and pain and suffering will exist. And it was all won, it's all achieved, it's all finished for us at the cross. And so when we proclaim a message, when we pass on the gospel, we don't pass on a flimsy hope with crossed fingers, saying maybe it will come true one day, but we know that for certain that it is done. That the blood of Jesus is enough to cover the sins. From the gathered assembly of David and his people, he has foreseen the universal reach of the greater salvation of his greater son. And that feast that that one nation had there by the tabernacle, David foresees a greater feast, a feast that we see pictured in Revelation, a wedding banquet where all are invited and all nations will be represented as we gather together to worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. So imagine that day for a moment. We don't know much about it, but let's amuse ourselves for a moment. We are there, sat at that table of the banquet in heaven. And we're sat next to Joe Boggs, someone we don't know. He lived in a century that we never existed in. He spoke a language and came from a country that we've never heard of. But the one thing that we both have in common is Jesus. He is the husband, and we as his church are the bride, and that day we'll be brought together for a great feast of celebration because of the great redemption, the great deliverance that God has won for us in Christ. And in one sense, we have that wedding invitation to pass on to people. We know the one who, who does the inviting. And we can point people in the the direction of the one who invites. And because we've been invited and we've experienced what it's like to know God and to be, to be with Him and to be redeemed from our sin, we pass it on to others. And so as we gather together this morning to worship, as we give thanks and praise for what God has done, let's not just keep it in the gathered assembly. Let's not keep it to ourselves. Let's pass it on. Let's share the invitation. Let's point people to Jesus. Psalm 22 has been an epic of a journey. As we've seen David's cry of anguish, as we've seen the words of Jesus that David prophesies, the cross, the greatest event in history, because its consequences span history, both before and both beyond, and will continue up, and will continue on until the day that Jesus returns. And so as God's people, we have 
the joy and the privilege and the responsibility of being a part of that people and to pass on the message. We face a task that is unfinished. It's the first line of our our closing hymn. We have a responsibility and we are given our lives to serve God. We join the many who've gone before us. We have the same mission to fulfill and we pass it on and we keep going. And we seek God and we ask for his strength and his power and his grace to enable us to serve. So let's stand and sing this hymn together, Facing a Task Unfinished.